want to talk to you about um, something that you all have, just as I have. I don't care your age. I don't care your stage in life. If you're pre-65 or after 65, if you met Jesus Christ, you have a story to tell. And, um, and if you haven't met Jesus, I hope that you will meet somebody with a story they cannot keep to themselves. And it, and it will, uh, if, it, if nothing else, it will convince you that another person has sort of blindly believed in Jesus, if that's the cynic heart you carry with you today. I, I don't make fun of you either. I don't, I don't believe that's true. I think most of us are sincerely interested in knowing God. Some would say if there is a God. And I, I'm not critical of that either. Because when you meet him, you'll be convinced. No one has to convince you. He will, he will persuade you that that is, in fact, uh, the case. But I, um, <clears throat> I want to give you the names of three authors, and you tell me what you uh, think when you hear these names. C.S. Lewis, Josh McDowell, and Lee Strobel. What do they have, those three have in, con in, in concert? I love your answers. I can't hear any of them because I am 65. But I will say this. I will say this. It tells me you're readers, some of you, and, and you're, you're, you're reading good people, those three. Um, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis is a game changer. Do you know somebody intellectual that's kind of stuck or, or hindered by something that they can't get over? Hand them that book respectfully and say, hey, this, this can make a difference, C.S. Lewis. And then, of course, there's evidence that demands a verdict. I gave many speeches in universities and among college students all my days prior to coming here and have used many of those things ever since from Josh McDowell. And uh, it's actually a two-volume set, Evidence That Demands a Verdict and More Evidence That Demands a Verdict. So kind of um, really cool. And then there's uh, a more newcomer, I would call it, at least to those two, and that would be Lee Strobel, who wrote The Case, The Case for Christ. He was, in his previous life, a investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune, Lee Strobel was. And he decided to take all of those credentials and examine Christ, not as a believer. And you'll get to see what he thinks. But you likely, if you've read one or all of those books, have found yourself somewhere between inspired, I mean really inspired, to intimidated when it comes to the prospects of telling people about Jesus. Uh, yet the Apostle Peter makes a statement in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. I hope you will memorize these words. But today I hope you won't live a day longer thinking they don't apply to you. Okay? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, Sanctify Christ as Lord of your heart. Uh, let me give it to you in another version. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And then he says this, always being ready to give an answer to everyone who asks of the hope 
that you have in your heart. So he implies lots of things, and this isn't a message about Peter. This is actually going to come from Acts 26 and the Apostle Paul. But Peter made a statement that, that is worth our consideration when we read Acts 26. Okay? So sanctify Christ as Lord. In other words, set Christ apart. Decide you're going to bow the knee to him. Today is the day of salvation if that hasn't happened for you yet. Trust me. And if you're confused by my words, let's talk about that. But here's the deal. Um, to sanctify Christ, to set him apart as Lord of your life, means that you're going to be given moments in some cases, many moments, some by surprise, you didn't even go looking for it. It just happened. It was in the grocery store. It was in a doctor's waiting room. It was in weird places at a football game. I told, they celebrated a, a, a leukemia survivor yesterday at the, at, the, at the game. And her name, believe it or not, was Debbie. It wasn't, it wasn't my Debbie story, but it was, we all got chills, and I thought, you know what? I turned to the people behind me because they were, they were so loud and in favor of the other team. <laughs> I just turned around. I told them a little bit of my story. Hey, I grew up not far, and they told me where they lived. They flew up here because the duck, or the, uh, the Pac-12 is now Pac-2. It's disintegrated. And they said, this might be the last chance we get to watch our team, the Cal Bears in Berkeley, play your team here in Oregon. And, I, and it was right after this, this profile they told um, in a timeout of this Debbie that had survived leukemia. So guess what I did? I turned around and shared Jesus with them. This, it wasn't long. It wasn't a big, giant altar call. It was just a moment to say, you know what? That story we just all heard and everybody, 50,000 people are oohing and aahing. I said, is my Debbie story because of Jesus Christ? The hope that is within. So Peter's words inspired me not just to prepare this message, but they inspire me often to say every moment is a chance to give an explanation of the hope I have that gives me gas in my tank to go on. Um, now, those words, I'm going to admit to you, are a tall task for rank-and-file believers like us. You say, well, that's, yeah, come on, you're being nice. Us. No, I believe that. Because when I read those three books I mentioned to you, I thought, I'm a hack. I am a rookie. I'm a junior varsity compared to those people. Um, maybe you're one of those today that says, I can't do that. I can't, I can't hardly say hello to a stranger. Okay, let's start there. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to consider that those words might actually be for more than just apostles and theologians or pastors. Uh, before going any further, I, I guess it's time to um, explain, because I said it earlier and it occurs to me I didn't explain it. What is an apologist? Okay, I didn't like the word, because I, I felt like it was a, a word that alienated rather than invited. 
conversation. So what is an apologist? Here's Webster, if this is a good start. An apologist is someone who speaks or writes defensive um, of someone in defense of someone or something that is controversial, unpopular, or subject to criticism. Christianity. You speak about it, you write about it, you tell what the people next to you, uh, um, what they hear from your lips, it's all, it's all good. It all fits. And, and, and that makes you an apologist. Turns out, by that definition, that you speak or write about something that's controversial or unpopular, the, the, it's, it's ex- exceedingly unpopular in our world today. It is, and you know that, and I know that. And, and it's subject to criticism. But it turns out that by that definition, I'm an apologist. And so are you. So are you. How many went to seminary? One, two, three. How many went to Bible college? A few more maybe? Eh, 15? How many went to U of O or Oregon State or some secular bastion of secularism? Y'all, y'all fit. These words fit. They fit you just like they fit me. If, in fact, in our hearts we revere Christ, as Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15. Okay. But... How do we speak, and how do we write about Christ? It seems that like most things, if you ask the how do we question, the best place to turn is the Bible. And look for an example of somebody that did it well or poorly, because the Bible doesn't hide either one of them. And that's why my Bible's open to Acts 26, if you want to turn there and have it already. There's a very succinct example um, that we can point to of someone who conveyed the plain truth about who Jesus is and about how Jesus changes everything and everyone who turns to him. It's succinct. His name is the Apostle Paul, and of course we've known this name well for quite some time in our study of Acts, which is coming to a close. So... Uh, we come to a wonderful moment here, and it's where Paul's argument comes out into the open as he's standing in in a place that he's soon to leave and head for Rome. And he's been there for over two years in Caesarea on the coast of the Mediterranean, looking west from that point, as 40 of us did a few years back. I had people imagine by pointing a finger There, that place over there, you can squint and almost see it to the west. Yeah, it's Rome. That's, you couldn't see it really. It's thousands of miles away. But I was having people imagine the Apostle Paul in this scene standing on that shore, about to board a ship, it turns out, and we'll get to that next week, and head west to Rome. Okay, so that's what's going on here. 
Um, but last time in our study of Acts, a couple of weeks ago, um, we, we could sense, really, there was this growing cadence that after a two-year pause in due process, Paul, that means for you legal, uh, non-legal people, it means Paul was stuck. His case had not been adjudicated. He just basically was left in jail to rot, if you want to put it in those terms. Two plus years. Uh, charges would be dropped in this country in most cases for that kind of delay. But it was the Apostle Paul who now was about to get his chance, long awaited, two Christmases in jail, to explain in greater detail, this time before King Agrippa, what he had already made clear to Governor Festus. In fact, on the way to 26, look at verse 8 of chapter 25. He's saying this to Festus. Then Paul made his defense. I've done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or even against the Roman law, the you, Caesar. I've done nothing. I'm clean. He said earlier. Um, so here's how Paul began his answer of explaining what Peter calls that hope within. Chapter 26, now, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hands and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you're so well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. That's a way of saying nothing in my life has been hidden. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they know it all. Verse 5. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. Verse 6. And now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. In other words, the hope was still alive. They were still hoping this would happen. He turns to the king again. King Agrippa, it's because of this hope that these Jews are actually accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Interesting passing comment. Verse 9, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that, I, that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a times I went from one synagogue to another. That's where Jews gather for worship. I went from one to the next to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that, in, that I even hunted them down in foreign lands. Uh, 
And of course, that's going to take us to the second piece of his presentation of the hope in just a moment. Paul's defense is what we sometimes refer to as a testimony. It's what he's giving here. Think of it as a unique uh, story. Uh, it, it is a story that belongs to the storyteller. Right? You're not making up someone's story. You're telling your testimony or your story. It's a highly personal story. By definition, by definition now, your story is different than mine. So we can pretend a person that doesn't know Jesus walked up here and took a seat in this stool, and I told them about Jesus. And one of you came up here. It would be really embarrassing and not something I would do. But you came up here, and you told them about Jesus yourself. A hundred percent of your words, or nearly, would be different than mine. That's what's the idea behind a testimony. Uh, Paul models in his testimony some takeaways, as I like to call them. A couple of principles for us to follow if we get a turn to sit with somebody and tell them our story. The first is this. Write this down. He told about his past. We just read this. This is where we talk about our B.C., before Christ. There was a you before Christ. I actually met with some people this last week and I asked them that question and they said, oh, I've been a Christian all my life. And I didn't jump in and go, no, you haven't. I just knew that that was a euphemism that's often used, <clears throat> but it's not accurate. Not, not a single person was born Christian. Somebody told me years ago with a little bit of a jolt, God has no grandkids. All right? You say, well, that's silly. I've heard you say that before. Well, here's the truth. I thought I was good enough to get in because of my dad. Okay? He was darn near the Pope. <laughs> he had it going. So it was, a, it was a needed correction for me. But I had a B.C. My parents, if they were both alive today on this earth, would say, can I have the mic? <laughs> Let me tell you about B.C. and this boy. All right, so um, in most cases, no one knows the details better than the one that lived them. That's really true. However, in Paul's case, we just read that his B.C. story was actually widely known. That's what verse 4 and 5 are telling us. Hey, they've known me from my childhood, from the beginning of my life, my own country. They've known me for a long time and can testify that what I'm saying is true. I adhered to the strictest sect of our belief system, which is the Pharisees. I got it right. You want more proof of that? It's at the bottom of your outline. Look at Philippians 3. He, he says the same thing, but in much more detail. In other words, these aren't idle words. These are convincing facts. Notice also Paul did not attempt to beautify his past at all. What we just read, indeed, verses 9 to 11 are disturbing to read. Much less admit if you're the guy telling this about yourself. Uh, 
yet he held nothing back. You, you and I don't comfortably share our version of verses 9, 10, and 11. We actually stood by and voted against people who were being put to death for believing in the way. You can't give approval without a smile on your face, which is exactly the scene if you go back to Acts chapter 8 or Acts chapter 7 when Stephen breathed his last, the very next picture the camera shoots toward is this young Pharisee named Saul, who would become the Apostle Paul, giving his hearty endorsement of these people that just murdered him by throwing stones at him. But Paul doesn't hide that. So I have to ask this. Are you, are you that comfortable with, with your own story? Now, I want to be sensitive because I know some of your stories are so fresh. You're thinking, I can't, I can't lead with that. I can't tell about that. Um, I, I, I admit to you, it's easier to tell you I got kicked out of high school than if it happened last week. It's a long distance in my rearview mirror. But it's true. And can, you, can I tell you something? I've had more people say, you know, your raw honesty is what made me believe it. Or parents that have said to me on that point, you know, I was about to give up on my child, my teenager. This is ridiculous. They're in trouble all the time. All the time. And I'm like, is your name Nancy or Larry McCracken? Because you sure sound like them. Because I was. And I wasn't a criminal because they didn't catch me. But uh, I was. Some of you are going to ask questions later, I know. So, All right. I'm asking you, though, the question now. Are you comfortable, are you comfortable in your story? Um, your story might be a real hot mess. It, it might be. And, and even notorious, like Paul's, everybody knows it. Why aren't you comfortable with it? But have you considered if your past was a, well, let's, let's pretend you were a different person than this, this person that most people wouldn't believe you ever sinned. If, if your past wasn't a train wreck in some form, what are the chances you would have ever cried out to God for mercy? Good people are hard to convince they're not so good. I'm avoiding names and labels right now. And I, don't, I would never call somebody's name out. But I know people that think, well, no, I'm good. I go to the right church. And uh, we're full of good people. My lip bleeds at that moment. Um, but I'm pretty sure... Most of us would have to admit, practically speaking, we would have never cried out to Jesus if we were so good. And, you know, if you want to picture this, just go to Luke 18, and there is a uh, Pharisee who's good enough, they thought, and a tax collector who was disgustingly bad at every point, in every cell of their body, 
They were the quintessential um, post office picture of a bad person in that culture, tax collectors. They both came in to church. Jesus told this story. Not real people, a parable. In other words, Jesus is controlling the narrative. He's telling the story. And he tells of the Pharisee that was so puffed up. Uh, let him talk. Let him, let him tell how good he is and how little he needs of God's mercy and redemption and forgiveness. The other man spoke seven words of salvation. And the posture in which he spoke them has never gotten out of my He didn't stand there in front like this. God, I... He bowed his face. It says he was crestfallen. Likely heard everything the fat cat had just shared. Crestfallen and broken. And it's, it adds this. He was beating his chest. When these seven words came out, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Seven words that resulted in that man's salvation. If you've not prayed those words, I beg of you, pray them and mean them. And the change will begin to happen almost immediately. So having established his B.C. days, Paul proceeds secondly to tell the dramatic truth of how he met Jesus. Verse 12. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. He had the credentials to cross borders. North and east of Israel is Damascus or Syria as we know it today. About noon, King Agrippa, I was on that road, and I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. I only thought Paul did, but, that, but these are his words, looking back on that moment when he was traveling with, with his team. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. Read testimony. Verse 17, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to actually open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This piece just captured most of it's in red ink in my bible a lot of words from jesus he's retelling this is the section of his story that was vividly described all the way back you can do it online you could do it um, any way you wish go back to chapter 9 we talked deeply about it as it was actually unfolding okay so as it was being told in real time this is paul looking back years later 
on that very scene in Acts chapter 9. Um, he saw a light, and he heard a voice from heaven, and it, I was surprised to learn it leveled him and his posse. They were all flattened to the ground. Here is his testimony, and, and in this is, um, he gives detail that intensifies his conversion. Kind of gives you a like an inside view, if you will, of, of what it felt like to be cruising to Damascus, prepared to claim more scalps, if you will, of, of these crazy people that are calling out on Jesus and saying they belong to him. It was, that was nonsense to him. And, and he actually quotes Jesus' rebuke. Some, some blow right by that, but verse uh, 14. Why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's an expression that was well-known in that world uh, among uh, sheep herders. It was, it was the idea of kicking, uh, an expression of kicking in resistance to a shepherd's staff. It's, it's the same today as resisting God. When he pursues you, it's not unlike, um, I'd do it, but it'd be weird, banging your head against a wall. You know when you do that? Two things happen. It's, it's frustrating if you're the headbanger, and it's futile. Who wins? The wall. That's a good answer. You will not win with that. But with great clarity, Paul tells how Jesus in that moment. It's, you could correctly call this uh, a 180. It was a 180. On the way there to, to get more people and eliminate them. And it, it, it all changed up for him. He was appointed, verse 16 says, as a servant and as a witness. He hears that in that moment. This is what you're going to do. And then he was sent by Jesus. I love verse 18, and I hope you'll hold on to verse 18 because it's, it's, it's a view of what happens when somebody is born again. John 3 tells about born again. It's going, look at his words, I will rescue you from your own people. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. Before we knew Jesus, we were in the dark. There's no exception to that. We were darkest, darkness, and we've been, the, 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 the blinders have been removed. And then he goes a step further from the power of Satan to God. Can you call this a tug of war or what? Before I met Jesus, there was a powerful operator in charge of me as though I wasn't enough of a problem but the power of Satan had to be broken and the only one that could break it is Jesus that's that's great stuff um, Ron Pricer uh, a musician and uh, worship leader in our church uh, wrote a song called darkness to light um, it's got a great chorus that captures the truth of verse 18, which I'm having you kind of focus on for a second here. 
this chorus reads this way. For I have called you to call them from darkness to light, and I have saved you to save them from eternal night. I have opened your eyes and given them sight, so go in my power and turn their darkness to light. Isn't that great? It's great words, and I appreciate Ron's writing them and composing them. Um, do you understand how those words apply to more, more than the Apostle Paul? Because they do. Uh, they apply to everyone who's gone from darkness to light, from death to life, from controlled by Satan to submitted and led by the living God. Amen. <laughs> oh, man. Um, those, are, those are words, and let me give the right pronoun. They are your words to share. The greater the grip that the devil, verse 18 says, the greater the grip that the devil has on you or had on you, which has now been broken, the greater the impact of your story and mine. So, and, and I've said it a lot, God wants to leverage your story for his glory. So, so why would we ever want to expunge dark details? It's your story to tell. Can you hear those two words from Jesus? Go to a duck game and tell it. You know what I mean? Go wherever. I had my first Medicare doctor appointment this week. I didn't know I was that sick. I mean, really, it was, she's looking all kinds of places. And, um, and, then, and then they took a test. And I, and I just struck up the conversation with the, I think they're called image person or imaging or something. And I, I just talked to her about my story. She goes, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. This is beautiful. There were words as I left the, uh, I almost said operating room. I'm not that far yet, but the exam room. I, as I'm leave, leaving the room, there's words. This is not a Christian hospital that I went to. There's words from Earl Rodmacher, the former president of Western Seminary, on the wall. And I stopped the nurse. I said, did, did you know, do you know this person? No, no, but those are great words. Gee, I wish the door would open for me to share something about Jesus right now. You see what I mean? It's just a moment that comes. All right, quickly, the last piece of Paul's testimony. He never wavered from telling his story. You got to see verse 19. So then King Agrippa, uh, entering in quote again, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision that I've just told you about from heaven. First to those in Damascus, he continued on, then to those in Jerusalem and all of the surrounding area of Judea, and then to the Gentiles in other places. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That's a great statement of the gospel and its change effect. This is why some Jews seized me in the temple court and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here, and I testify. Remember, 
King Agrippa and Festus was still there. These are big shots. These are neckties, we would call them. He says, I'm, I stand here and testify to small and great. I don't care who it is. Alike, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would come and suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his people and to all the world's people, the Gentiles. Notice at this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you crazy. You're going insane. I'm not insane, most ex excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king, referring to Agrippa now who was standing there, the king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm, I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it, it was not done in a corner in secret. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Isn't that a great? He didn't wait for an answer. He goes, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa says to Paul, do you, do you really think that, that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? I love this. Paul didn't chuckle and laugh. There's no record of that. Record of that. It goes on, verse 29. Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all of the rest of these folks listening here today may become as I am, except minus the chains. Remember, he's been in, incarcerated. Then the king arose, and with him the governor, Festus, and Bernice, and those sitting with them. And after they left the room, they kibbutzed and began saying to one another, this man's not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Despite the fact that he often shared his testimony with those who had the power to permanently silence him. He kept telling. That's the point. Don't ever let go of that. You don't get to a place, nor do I, where it's not time to tell. So don't embrace this morning. Please don't do this. Here or in someplace else listening to this. Don't embrace the inaccurate truth of believing that, well, okay, Pastor, that was really impressive stuff that Paul told about his story. But you know what? The truth is, he had the gift. Like you said a couple of weeks ago, he had the moxie. I mean, he, he had uh, the training. He was well-trained. And if you conclude that way this morning, we have spent 35 minutes uh, on an adventure of wasted time. Because this is not about that at all. This is not about finding a single reason why you're the exception to what we just read. Paul told his story. And he knew it well. And he told it often. Um, but he also fully admitted that he did it with knees knocking frequently. So this is not him being cavalier going, 
none of that. This is not that. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. I, read, I quote this to myself every Sunday in 40, for 43 years. When I came to you, I did not come with cleverness of speech. These are Paul's words to the Corinthian think tank. When I came to you, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom when I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. But I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my preaching and my teaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom so that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of this man, but on God, the Apostle Paul. I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Who, we've taken those words out of Paul. He wrote them of himself. He also openly expressed his need for prayer. He said this in Ephesians, and he says it here in Ephesians chapter 6 and Colossians. Listen to this. Pray that I may proclaim the gospel clearly as I should. And then he turns to us who are taking notes on his words. Colossians 4, 4 to 6. He says, be wise in the way you act toward people at the duck pond. Toward outsiders, make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. When you encounter moments, as I do, where we're asked to explain the hope within us, like Paul, you have a story. I have a story. It's our story. It's real and it's true. And it's you. Don't stutter. Um, I have two recent developments in my life that have made their way into my story when I share. One is the loss of my mother two years ago. Um, the other, same month, two years later, my father. They both turned for home, and the last moment in which they breathed their final breath in this life on this earth, they opened their eyes and breathed their first breath in heaven, now face to face with Jesus Christ. And because of what Jesus did on a cross for people who will turn to him and say, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Because of what he did, forgive them, birthed in them a new life, a new heart, saved them. Um, the Bible says, and because Jesus rose again three days later, guess what? There's this glorious reunion promise to those of us that haven't yet gone home to be with him. I tell a version of that all the time, and I tell it not randomly with no context. I tell it to people who learn that piece of our story or my story, and I say, um, they, they always say, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, and I appreciate that. And then I get to tell them, I did this week, and it's, it's 
too personal yet to tell you, but um, it was very powerful, very powerful moment, very funny moment. Um, the second part of the story I tell today is what happened on June 10th, 2021, to my Debbie and how she was stricken with leukemia, AML. And it was a hurricane force hit, and yet she's in full remission today. We tell why. We point to Jesus. We say without hesitation, not a big parade, just a simple conversation. That there is, how come you didn't just fold your cards and lose it? story to tell and I plan to keep telling it and I want to encourage you to do the same would you bow your heads with me as servers come to join us right now because really at the heart of the story that any of us have to tell is a uh, truth about Jesus uh, Christ died for our sins according to the scripture that he was buried and rose again the third day according to the scripture. All of that is truth that represents the gospel all said and said often. I delivered to you of first importance. This is really important. This is not a ceremony. This is not a uh, sort of a spiritual uh, icon it's meant to portray something that's profoundly deep and it represents the person that hung from a tree and became a curse for me that's how I approach communion I hold in my hand the bread as you will in a moment and then I hold a cup of juice and it, and it represents his body and his blood that were both poured out and shed, given for me. If you don't know Jesus, that's, that's something you need to hold back on because God knows hearts, and he says that would make it um, artificial for you. It becomes profoundly, very, very personal and real. When you go back to your B.C. days, I'm going to encourage you to do that as we sing. And as the servers bring these things to, to us, that you would go back and say, Jesus, take me back to my journey to Damascus to do things that I actually have been ashamed of ever since. But, but, but in that moment, don't forget to stop and say, but I met you. I was like that man that Jesus told about. I was... I guess daring enough or desperate enough and I said God have mercy on me the sinner would you do that this morning let's just all do that and, and when you come to that place take the bread and the cup to share communion and worship the one that made life possible